There are two types of podcasts. There's Broadway podcasts. There's true crime podcasts. Today, those worlds combine. As I am Detective Daniel. I am Detective Christian. And we're going to explore the case behind the musical parade. All right, so Christian, we talked to people about this last week. We said we're doing things differently. Differently. They didn't believe us. Oh, they don't realize. We it's, we didn't flip it over. It's a whole new game. Yeah, it's a whole new game. So as I was putting this together, I realized, oh my God, this is not the same podcast. Because normally we use songs to tell a story. In yes. this case, we're using a story and to including song. songs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's very different. I'm very excited. If you hate it, it'll only happen once. Yeah. But it's going to be a hell of a time. I'm very excited and um honestly very privileged to to to, to be able to do this because as me and Daniel figured out in the last 2 weeks, there isn't a lot of um super Material. exciting media in regards to this case. Yes. Um and by that I mean just uh it's dry history. Yes. And um, I think it's a story that needs to be told. I agree. Um, let us know uh, if you're on Spotify. There'll be a question on what your thoughts are. Let us know what you think. Um, we definitely want to know what you guys feel about this because we're excited about it. I'm a big true crime fan. Oh, yeah. Christian's a big musical fan, so this is like worlds colliding right now. And uh, we don't really know exactly what it's going to be, but we think that it'll be different, unique, and we're hoping that it'll be enjoyable. So, um, the best place to start, I think, is probably just the introduction of the musical. Okay. Um, because ultimately, this is a podcast about musicals, and we're going to go through the, some of the select songs from the music, and I'm very excited about those songs. Um, but first off, we're going to hear about the musical. We're going we're gonna to hear from Joel. Um, who's gonna, you're actually gonna hear for the first time ever, you're gonna hear from Joel twice in one episode, which yeah. I think is what the people really want. This is the first time that I'm hearing Joel with you as well. Um, which is very cool, and I love that we're kind of opening the door to possibilities, yeah. um, outside of the traditional format. Um, but we're gonna hear from Joel twice today at the beginning and then at the end. At the end, he's gonna tell us all the things that we may have missed. Um, it's possible that you might be hearing some things for the second time, but you're going to hear a lot from Joel, which is awesome because he has so much information on this. Yeah, of course. Uh, because, um, the rainy boys, they love them some history. They do. And so does Daniel. I also love history too. Oh, that's so great to hear. This is going to be so much fun, yeah. but we're going to hear from Joel. Um, and he's going to tell us about the musical parade. Is our dramaturg's name is Joel Rainey. We're ready to hear him do some explaining. He is so smart and we're grateful to have him. Listen to him if you want to learn facts. Yeah, he's our local. Dramaturge, we're so lucky that we have him on the podcast. Well, here we are with another week and a whole new format, thanks to Christian. 
Um, he has chosen a show that is actually has always been in my top five of favorite musicals, but the only one in the top five that I had never seen. And I feel very blessed to have gotten to see that, uh, see Parade a couple of weeks ago. And I got to see it in New York with Christian and uh, saw a wonderful, wonderful production. So let's, let's sort of get into it. Um, it's got a book by Alfred Urey, uh, Music and Lyrics by Jason Robert Brown. Okay, um, this is a heavy one. This is one of those musicals where you sort of wonder, how could they do a musical about that? We look at things like Jesus Christ Superstar or Evita or things like that. Well, this certainly falls into that that category. It's a dramatization of the 1913 trial, imprisonment, and eventual uh, lynching of Jewish American Leo Frank in, in Georgia. Heavy stuff. Uh, it premiered on Broadway back in December of 1998 and won uh, Tony Awards for Best Book, Best Score, uh, won six Drama Desk Awards. Um, it had a revival that we just saw, as I said, uh, and uh, won Best Revival as well. Its original director was Harold Prince, the great Harold Prince, who we know of things like uh, Evita and Sweeney Todd. Um, he actually turned to Jason Robert Brown to write it after Sondheim had turned him down. And what a show it would have been with Sondheim. Um, how Prince's daughter, Daisy, actually brought her to Jason Robert Brown. And it also has a book by Alfred Urey, as I said, who actually grew up in Atlanta and had personal knowledge of the whole Frank story as his great uncle owned the pencil factory that was run Whoa. by Leo Frank. Uh, the show was Brown's first odds. Broadway show. Yeah. Uh, Broadway production. His music, according to Charles Isherwood, and one of the first reviews, was subtle and had appealing melodies that draw on a variety of influences from pop, rock, to folk, to rhythm, and blues, and gospel. Um, it premiered at the Vivian Beaumont Theater at Lincoln Center. If you ever get a chance to go see a show there, it's a beautiful, beautiful theater. Um, opened in December and had a limited run and closed in February. Um, so it only had 85 regular performances. It starred Brent Carver as Leo Frank, Carolee Carmelo as Lucille Frank. Um, most critics did praise the show, especially the score, but the public um, just had some problems with it. Uh, there was a great New York concert of it in 2015 at Avery Fisher Hall with Jeremy Jordan and Laura Benanti, uh, Ramin Karimlu, we love Ramin. Joshua Henry was in it as well. Um, then New York City Center staged a gala concert of it in for their 22-23 season uh, with Ben Platt and Michaela Diamond uh, that was directed by Michael Arden and it got wonderful, wonderful, wonderful reviews. Um, it also started, uh, starred Jennifer Laura Thompson as Sally Slayton, Gaten Monarazzo as Frankie Epps, we know him from Stranger Things, Howard McGillan from Drood um, was in it as well. And it was conducted by Jason Robert Brown, which is kind of kind of neat. Uh, the reviews were pretty darn favorable, saying rather than leaving its audience su suitably impressed but emotionally unmoved as in prior viewings, uh, Michael Arden's spare but meticulous production unleashes the gripping theatricality of the writing that has heretofore been trapped within. And so eventually what happened is it was brought to Broadway. 
very exciting. Um, now let's just talk a little bit about the background because as a dramaturg, this is um, sort of a gold mine of all sorts of very, very interesting facts. And uh, one of the biggest is the fact that the South and, um, and uh, the Jewish people of Georgia uh, and the, the South altogether have really tried to sort of forget about all this, which is why many people don't know about it. Um, it deals with uh, Jewish factory worker Leo Frank, who, as I said, was accused and convicted of, of raping a 13-year-old girl, Mary Fagan. Um, the trial was sensationalized by the media, as you can imagine, in 1913, uh, dealing with its anti-Semitic tensions in Atlanta and the, the state of uh, Georgia at large. Um, when his death sentence was commuted to life in prison, uh, Governor John M. Slayton in 1915, due to reviewing all these pages of the testimony and all that, um, commuted it to life. And when that happened, a lynching party seized and kidnapped Frank and was taken, he was taken to Marietta, Georgia, the home of Mary Fagan, and was hanged from an oak tree. The events surrounding this whole investigation uh, led to the re-emerging of the, uh, what was then the defunct KKK, and also the birth of the Jewish Civil Rights Organization. Jazz, it just adds up the heavy subject matter for today. Yeah. Um, we're going to do our best, like usually we're, we're more of like a comedy uh, show, but we're, we're taking this seriously. Uh, I think there's room to have a little bit of like fun with this, but we also want to make sure we're respecting... Like it will be factual based off. Like I did a lot of research yeah. in two weeks. I felt like I was writing a research paper. Yeah. Um. So I have a a lot of notes, a lot of thoughts. Um. I will not read them verbatim, but it will. What I do read will be factual. Yeah. Um. And it's re it's really what's important here is through the music. Like yes, the the music piece is important, and we're going to listen to thirteen songs. Um. But what's more important here is like Joel was saying. Um. Not a lot of people know this. Yeah. And especially us being in the South, it's something that need like it's it's a black mark. It's it's awful. Um, but it needs to be told. And yeah. but and there are good parts of this story that and should inspire hope and wonderful other qualities because yeah, it's a story of love. Oh yeah. Core. Like enduring love. Um and and so we're going to jump into it. Um, so I guess we should, um, let's talk about who Mary Fagan was. Yeah. Before we hop in, did Joel say this was his first musical, Jason Robert Brown? The first one he saw? No, the first like musical that Jason Robert Brown made. had on Broadway. Okay. Okay. Um, well, cause most of his stuff was off Broadway. If, and I, I might be, again, I might be wrong on that, yeah. but that, that is what I think he was saying because yeah. most of Jason Robert Brown stuff, like he's never had a commercial hit. Um, and I don't, we'll find out because Parade has since closed, but it's yeah. only been a few weeks. So the numbers aren't public yet. Yeah. It'll be interesting if even this was a commercial hit. Yeah. It was very successful reviewed. Like uh -huh. his stuff is always very well reviewed. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if it, it made money or not. Yeah. This is our, f the fourth Jason Robert Brown musical that we've covered and all of them have been pretty different. Yeah. We've got songs of the new world, which was. A concept musical all over the place. Thirteen is this kind of fun, like coming of age, coming of age story. The last five years is like this love story that's 
told it like such a unique perspective and then I can only imagine this is going to be different as well. I know that Joel mentioned all the types of music that is influenced by. So I, I'm excited to hear the music. And I know this, I, I've also done some research. So I'm really excited to see how the how the music relates to the story. So that's something I'm really looking forward to. But back to what you were saying about Mary Fagan. Yeah, so, um, and again, it, it's possible things are going to be repeated as we do this. But yeah. like, again, it, again, the important piece is factual. So Mary Fagan was a 13 year old girl who was murdered in the year 1913 in yep. Atlanta. Um, it's tough. It's tough. Um, so the subsequent trial and conviction of Leah Frank, uh, who was a Jewish factory manager, as we know, uh, he was accused of the crime. Yep. Um, widespread attention, all like, Everything we know. Yeah. Um, Should we, like, tell the story of, or how, like, I'm sure you have a plan, but do we want to, like, walk through the case? Like, um, We will piece by piece. Okay. Um, What I want to do now is do the first song in the show. Okay. It's, um, it's, it set, sets up the story starting Civil War time. Perfect. And then jumping to I the, the turn of the century. Okay. Um, and it follows a Civil, Civil War soldier. From before the war, like going into the war, and then like after the after the okay. war. So we're we're, we're going to hear that. talking off air about this that like it's the most beautiful piece of music it like it rivals some sondheim stuff of just beautiful music and it's it's tough yeah it's inherently like it gets that southern pride that yeah. like that some people feel i call it southern guilt yeah. but some people feel like so much pride in this and this is so real of southern people they're so prideful of their heritage and history yeah. even if it's kind of rooted in really messy stuff it's it goes back like because i like my family is from georgia like i've lived in alabama like lived in the south all my life just as like you have but it's this thing where like some of these towns are so small that it's almost like the knowledge that they have is protected and you're told that like everybody else is out there to try to wash away what is important. And so it's just like this bond to this ideology that they've been kind of sheltered by their entire life to where like they're willing to 
like like the Civil War fight and die for it, but like now it's like you see all the the Confederate flags and the monuments and, and just the the kind of chaos that is caused in our country just because these people are so dedicated to their their roots. Like the Confederate flag is not the Confederate flag; it's the the battle flag of Georgia or the battle flag of Virginia. Like it wasn't the Confederate flag, and just it's truly a a bizarre thing. And it's like if you're like us and we're living in North Carolina, if you drive towards West Virginia, yeah. there's this Confederate flag that is, um, it's like 50 feet yeah. tall there's one that you pass on the interstate. Yeah. Same way if you're going to like Asheville as well. So like we're lucky that we live in like the big city, but if, if you stray too far, you kind of see that like a lot of this stuff is still real. And maybe people are kind of sheltered that to live and in the that, cities. And there's a piece of music that we're not playing on the episode, but there's a piece of music that's just this celebration of Georgia music that shows up three or four times in the show, only twice in the recording, but it shows up throughout the show as like this interlude to kind of, kind of show this idea that it's a loop. This is never going to change. Like, and that's kind of what just Robert Brown plays around with is this is Georgia then, but is it really that different from Georgia now? And Georgia just not so much being Atlanta, Georgia, but being the South, this way of thinking, this way of perceiving, like just this ideology that um, you may quote us on this, like (laughs) we're not into it. Um, It's very like, if you you can look at the last election and see that things are changing, but you can also look at the the last election and see how things were received to know that, they're still there. So yeah. like and, progress and is being made, but at the same time, anybody who says that like things are good, and this is the best time to be an American and like all this stuff, like things are still pretty bad. Fortunately for us, like we haven't had to deal with that. Like we're and like we kind of make an effort on the podcast to not be political per se or talk about thing. But in this case, yeah, this is not something that's okay. Like, and and that's, and that is what it is. Like, so why this was so important to tell was because this is not okay. And when I watched this show with my dad, it was like the most moving piece of theater I've ever experienced. And I have never felt more Southern guilt. Yeah. And like, I don't know if everyone can appreciate that concept if you don't live in the South, but like to not be prideful about it, to not be like all these things, like to be on the other side of that being like, what the hell guys? Yeah, for sure. Like, so that's hard. Um, so, but we're going to keep this moving. Yeah. Who was Leo Frank? So Leo Frank was a, um, Jewish American businessman originally, if I'm correct from New York city, he was from Brooklyn, Brooklyn. So he was born in Texas, born in Texas. Um, but his uncle owned a pencil company. So he moved to Atlanta um, in, like, the the teens to uh, be a, like, to run it for him. Yeah, he actually um, uh, went to Cornell University, and yeah. he studied mechanical engineering. Um, but his uncle ran it, so him and his wife um, moved to Georgia at the, like, turn of the century. Like, they, they lived there for a bit, and he was the, he was the factory manager of this yeah. pencil company, um, where Mary Fagan worked and yeah. she was 13 she yeah, started working labor, when she was 10 which is crazy. um which was something in georgia that was a law change in georgia more so than anywhere else in the u.s um so who was his wife 
uh, you, I'll let you take this yeah. one. So uh, Leo and Lucille were married August 16, 1910 in New York City. Lucille was originally from Brooklyn, New York, and came from a well-to-do Jewish family. Yeah. Um, and we'll get more into, into their relationship because a lot of who she was had to do with how she supported him through the trial. Yeah. Um, but the South was very hard for Leo. Like that, that is very important because like he was from Brooklyn, he was Jewish. He moved into a place that, um, was not welcoming to him. Not the Atlanta of today. Um, you look how people like, if you live in the South, how they look at like Yankees and the people that come up North, like imagine back in the day, like, like we just listened to a song about the civil war. This isn't that far from it. And somebody comes in, not only are they different than you, they're from a, like, uh, anti-Semitism doesn't really get talked about as much. Um, and it's a thing even yeah. even today. Yeah, it's of course. it's like, people... Look at what happened with Kanye West. Yeah. Like, just blatantly. And there's been a lot of stuff of... Like, even in my immediate world, like, this is like in the last month, someone was talking about people coming from the North and taking jobs. Yeah. And it's like... Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, so, that that was... The climate was much worse then. Yeah. But it's not better now. Like, it's not... I mean, it's a little bit better. We're headed in the right direction, but it, but it could use work. Yeah, of course. Um, So, we're, we're going to listen to our next song, um, How Can I Call This Home, which is kind of our introduction to Leo and where he's at mentally at the start of the show. Um, where... In the show, like, him and his wife have some dialogue about yeah. that she wished he would be, like, a little more accepting to Southern culture. It's where they live now. Yeah. And he's just very much like, eh, that, like this isn't us. Yeah, I, I did see something, like, um, so, like, this is, like, on a History Channel documentary. Like, for the, the Jewish people that, like, existed in the Atlanta area, a lot of them were, like had kind of Americanized their faith. So, like, they didn't necessarily keep kosher. They didn't necessarily follow, like, all of the practices. So when people that came from New York, um, even amongst their own faith, there were differences. So, like, not only were there Jewish people there, but, like, it's almost kind of like a different version of Judaism from what they were practicing to. So even There's there's actually a a line in, in the text song where he says... I thought that Jews were Jews, but I was wrong. Like, yeah. that it would be universal, but it wasn't. Yeah, so. It's different. Um, so we're going to listen to this song, How Can I Call This Home? Um, and just, yeah, we're just going to listen to it, and then we're going to talk about it. Sure. I go to bed at night, hoping when I wake, this will all be gone like it was just a dream, and I'll be home again, back again in Brooklyn. With people who look like I do And talk like I do And think like I do But then The sun rises in Atlanta Again These people make me tense I live in fear they'll start a conversation These people make no sense They talk and I just stare and shut my mouth It's like a foreign land I didn't understand that being southern's not just being in the south When I look out on all this, how can I call this home? 
these men belong in zoos It's like they never joined civilization The Jews are not like Jews I thought the Jews were Jews, but I was wrong So, Chaser Robert Brown is amazing Yes Because um, I've never really caught it um, because I, after listening to it, I, I pull up the lyrics. I'm like, I, I'm gonna catch everything. Um, and there's three different pieces of music playing here. Yeah. Um, and it's two to one. It's the the other two. Other than him singing, there are two different songs playing, which are two songs in the show yeah. of Hills of Georgia and the Dream of Atlanta. Yeah. Um, which I think just shows that like he's outnumbered here. Yeah. This is con- like he's singing a song in this world of this other song. Yeah. This is not like he can't be rooted in this song because other songs are conflicting what he's saying. Yeah. Um how'd you like that song, Daniel? It was good. Uh and one of the like the tones of like the, the opposing song is the I'm not sure the exact name, but it's like the the anthem of of Dixie. Okay. Um which is like the would have been like the um uh, I could share some, like I wish I lived in the land of cotton. Something though is open, turn away, turn away, turn away, and Dixie, Dixie Land. Yeah, yeah, so it's kind of like the national anthem for the Confederacy, which is playing there too, just to kind of show that he is opposed. And it is like it is a shock, like going like I I was born in North Carolina, we moved to Alabama, and it's a shock, like the the deeper South is different than like what we're in right now. You're from Louisiana and that's a different breed of yeah of Southerner. And you go to like Mississippi or like Arkansas, Texas, like it's different worlds and especially for people that are like like if you're Jewish for instance, if you're black for instance, like places where the people that live there think that you don't belong and they just want you to assimilate and change to be what they and want to be. Sometimes it even goes a step further than that, that they don't even want you to assimilate yeah. or change. They just want you out. Yeah. Like, you're 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 taking from them. Yeah. You don't belong here, which is, like, such a bad mentality because it's, yeah. like, we are where we are for, yeah. for whatever reason we're here. But it, there's a reason. Um, and, like, be accepting in your own community. <laughs> yeah. Like, always. Yeah. I like um, to think that our fans don't need to hear that kind of stuff because you course. guys are all troopers. But if, if you think badly of other people based off of, like, I don't know. That's tricky to say because then you have people like Jason Aldean and, like, he has his beliefs, but they're not tolerant. Just yeah. be tolerant in your beliefs. Like, believe what you want to believe, but don't try to change other people. Yeah. I don't know. You guys know what I'm talking about. But, yeah, this I think this is, like, a very, like, appropriate time, though, to play this because... For instance, are you familiar with the Jason Aldean song? Um, go ahead and educate me. So it's a song called Try This in a Small Town. Basically, it is like this battle cry for the small southern town after like the last few years of like with riots and like all this stuff. Basically say like try this in a small town and see how that happens. But Oof. so like like and he has like his fans love it. Like the people that love it love it, which is sad. But like for instance, he he recorded a um, the music video in front of a town hall, which was like the famous place for lynching. Oh my god! Like, that's where he recorded and kind of tied in a little bit with like what we're talking about, but like just where today, like you don't have to be as subtle. So this is the world of dog whistles, where 
oh, you're not saying it, but you're saying it. And like that song is just one big dog whistle of saying like, yeah, like try to come here with your woke beliefs and we'll put a bullet in your head. Like just awful. Like, that's basically what you're saying. Um, so yes, we've come a long way, but this stuff still exists today and we're, we're still dealing with it. Which, again, is why this is so important. Yeah, over 100 years later, it's still a relevant topic that we're talking about. And, like, and what's crazy, and we'll, we'll get into it in a bit, but, like, this story, this case, as of 2019, this is still under, like... Yeah. Like, it got reopened in 2019. Yeah, didn't they... They finally came out and said that they, like, scrubbed his name just because they're, like... Like this, also this case was extremely well documented. Like everything about this case was extremely well documented. Like from what Leo Frank said and like the letters that he told his wife to like a lot of the stuff that you hear that happened a hundred years ago, there's not that much information about. We're fortunate to like have that with this case. Yeah. Um, so Mary Fagan, um, she was the daughter of John and Francis Fagan and came from a working class background. Like she had to work. She had to stop going to school yeah. and work because that's what their situation was. Um, she came from Florence, Alabama, and her family moved to Georgia. She was a, she worked at the National Pencil Company factory in Atlanta, which Leo ran. Yeah. Um, where she was, um, her job was assembling and attaching erasers to pencils. That was her job. Yeah. Um, so I guess... We got to jump ahead a little bit because um, this is kind of timeline based. Yeah. Um, so she gets, um, she goes to pick up a check. Yeah. Um, we don't, uh, this is tough. Um, based off what we understand, um, the only conversation that Leo and her ever had was yeah. her asking for her check. Yeah. And this was during the civil rights, uh, not civil rights, uh, the, the, the civil, civil war, war yeah. memorial thing where they were honoring those who died serving the South. Yeah. So Leo was working during this because he wasn't going to go to the parade. Yeah. And she wanted to pick up her check before the parade. Um, so that was the only conversation they had. Um, now, however it happened, she dies. Yeah. Um, horribly, um, and we, um, so the logical thing to jump ahead to is we're going to listen to the funeral sequence, um, which is a wonderful piece of music, um, of just, they're talking about who a reporter is there trying to get the, and the thing about, we're going to talk a lot about reporters and, yes. and, and this because it both good and bad about yeah. a reporter is there in the context of the song interviewing people about who she was. And again, she was 13. Um, so we're going to listen to that song. Um, but before we do that, um, do you, do, do you have any thoughts on anything or it's just like how pointed this, like, and so I've never heard this musical, but just listen to what we have, like how pointed this case is for today. Like, in all aspects, like, the media, we're still having trouble with the media today. We're, like, it's just very relevant, so I'm glad we're doing this when we're doing it. All right, and here we go.
So I'm assuming that's like a, a regular old like gospel song. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. So, like, like. And that's also the thing to to remember here is this concept of religion rooted in Georgia. Yeah. That like they believe that they were right biblically. Like yeah. this is this is what God thought. This is um it's it's tough. It's yeah. very tough. Once you have like this is the book and my soul and my afterlife is attached to this, it becomes almost like a permission slip to kind of do whatever you want to. Yeah. Forgive me what I wish right now. You must have known Mary pretty well. Yes, sir, I did. This must be a mighty hard day for you. Did you ever hear her laugh? When she laughed, you swore you'd never cry again. Did you ever see her smile? smile was like a glass of lemonade and she said funny things and she yes yeah, so i think this perfectly sets up like the role that religion plays in this culture and how it is like creates this like moral Like it's um, it's interesting because most of the song is this beautiful like this is who she was. Did yeah. you ever see her smile? Like you, you swore you could never cry again. Like and in, in little tidbits in context of the time, like one of the lyrics is uh, one of her friends saying she knew how to read. Yeah, um, which Daniel pointed out to me. Um, like, and then near the end. It takes how grief and sometimes because of religion, maybe not because of religion, because it can happen outside of it. Yeah. But grief then can weaponize people because it stages a grief. It becomes anger. Yeah. And it's like the the people of Georgia were so angry about this and, and rightfully so like a 13 year old girl died. Yes. Um, But then they needed someone to blame. It's almost like, in order to heal, you have to, like, just not knowing is almost worse. Than, yeah. And I think a lot of times, like, especially in the justice system, like, we're just having somebody to pin it on. Just, it, it doesn't always, that takes precedence over actually finding out who did it. Yeah. And, and, and this actually is played with, if you want to go back and listen to our Into the Woods episode, where um, during the song... Your fault in the last midnight, the witch brings up this idea that like you need someone to blame. I guess blame me because you're not going to blame yourselves. Yeah. Um. And like, it's such a tough thing that we as people need need to blame someone. Yes. Because that then it will make sense. Um. But Leo Frank was not the only suspect. No. Um. So we're gonna talk a little bit about the other suspects. Um. Because. 
It's important. Jim Conley was um, was a, a, a janitor um, at the factory. So he played a, a crucial role in the case as a witness, uh, and he ultimately testified against Leo, um, claiming that um, Frank moved Mary Fagan's body to the basement. There's a song in that, and we'll listen to that yeah. later. Newt Lee was the night watchman um, who, who discovered her body. Um, he became an early suspect to his presence at the crime scene, but he was uh, eventually cleared of the suspicion when his alibi was corroborated and in the show um he is like the primary it's between him and and, and leo and there's yeah. this dialogue by the by the opposing attorney um saying we and this is just in the show yeah. um we can't we can't lynch another black man yeah. um so that's in the context of the show that's why they put it on leo yeah. which may or may not be far off from what yeah. happened and it also like very early on they thought it was Leo to the point where they it's like trying to make a puzzle piece that doesn't necessarily fit. Like they were doing everything they can to like set him up to look like I don't know if that was laziness on their part or like you just mentioned, like due to the, the unrest in the country at that time. Um but yeah, like this definitely is a is a case of the police just wanting to close the case. Whatever they're Intentions are behind that. Um, so now what's good to jump into is, is um, Lucille and Frank's um, relationship at the Ooh. time that he was arrested, where she was at. Because at this point, media is going nuts. Yeah, they're printing everything that anyone is telling them. Yeah, and a reporter in the context of the show goes goes to Lucille and is like, "Do you think he did it?" And the sex song will be yeah. her response to that. Do we talk any more about him getting arrested? Um, it's pretty quick. Okay. Um, so in the context of the show, he is arrested in his home. Yeah. And what's kind of like weird about this is like they they when they went to take him down, like he was so unassuming. He was like, "But I haven't had breakfast. Like, can we stop and get breakfast? Can we stop and get coffee? Like, so f like and." I mean, I don't really know, like, of course it could be him, but just, like, that was his reaction in the moment. Like, I feel like if, if you had done this and the police were here, you would be, you wouldn't yeah. be able to, like, react that way. But he was very much so, like, yeah, I'm happy to help you out, but, like, can we get some breakfast first? Like, can we, can I do this real quick? Can I get some coffee? And, like, yeah, in, in the show, when they come, like, they ask him who he was, is it true that you're a factory owner? And he's like, yes, oh, my God, what? Did, did something happen? Yeah. Da, da, da. And they're like, well, we, we need you to come downtown for questioning. And, and he's like, it's a big thing. It's like, can I have my coffee? Can I have like, can I change my shoes? Yeah. Can I like, there are things he needs to do because he's very methodical. And yeah. the thing about Leo early on in the trial, that is both true in the show. And it has been assumed through history. Cause we only have documentation. So it's hard to see temperament, Yeah, but that he was kind of like, so sure of himself he was arrogant yeah to to the point that like what's showcased in the show is his lawyer when he gets imprisoned um is saying is saying they're saying you did this like a b c d did you and he said i'm not even i'm not even going to dignify that with the yeah. response because he was offended by it yeah because he truly was like maybe it was arrogance but it was just this this is not who i am yeah there was another point 
where he was being investigated to where he was like, if I did that, there would be like marks and stuff on me. So he like stripped down to his underwear in order to show like, hey, like I have nothing to hide. Like this dude was, at least in his actions, was very like, no, I, I, how could I ever do this? And it goes back to it could be arrogance or so sure of like, it all. There also is like, uh, like a lot of people that have like you're raised to like have faith in the justice system. Yeah. To where you're like, oh, the justice system is meant to innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. I didn't do this. It shouldn't be a problem. But in reality, people get put in jail every day for stuff that they didn't do. The justice system is very flawed. So just to kind of show like where Leo Frank is at this point where it really hasn't quite said it yet. And that might be like a Southern thing where like a lot of times like you can look at Southern law enforcement and Southern courts as being flawed due to biases, which maybe he's not aware of. Um, Yeah. Like, and I think he's, he's very trusting in the process. Yeah. Which maybe he shouldn't have been. And, yeah. and some people read his, um, how willing he was to give them everything as, yeah. oh, he's trying to get away with something. Yeah. Like, he's being too forthcoming. He's being too, like, a innocent person might not do it this way. Yeah. Um, which, again, it's like this unfair, like, yeah. he had nothing to hide. This reminds me a lot of To Kill a Mockingbird. I think that's fair. So if you're kind of worried, like, if you're, if you're having trouble, like, picturing, uh, like, like the era, like think of like the Kill a Mockingbird and think of like how that was handled. And this is similar in that regard. Um, so we're going to hear. So when that reporter asked his wife, like, did, did he do it? And this yep. is her, her response. What's the name of the song? You don't know this man. captures like if you think about it like the loyalty of, of like love and family to where like you're not even willing to take this into consideration that this could have happened yeah i think that's completely fair right after this song the reporter then asks her i noticed you didn't say that he was innocent um and early on in the case she probably didn't know yeah very early on before everything was presented like 
Because she very much becomes an advocate for for him and fights for him uh-huh. later on. But at, at, at this point, it kind of plays into this fear-mongering concept that was the time. And it had to do with the reporting because it was sensationalized, yeah. um, which was what media was in the, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and basically anything that was um, given to reporters, they were reporting. Yeah. Anything. It didn't matter if the person really knew Lee or not. Like, so many things were being said. Um, And, like, so it was bias. It was because he was Jewish. Um, Yellow journalism, which is a a concept of of sensationalism, exaggeration, often absence of rigorous fact-checking. Fact checking. They were reporting everything. Uh, there were competing narratives. So, so, like, no one really knew what to believe because yeah. everything was being reported. Uh, the public opinion was a big part of this case, um, and unfortunately, it was tried by a um, by his peers, yeah. which were citizens of Georgia. Um, and this had national attention. And Georgia, the state of Georgia, had issue with national attention in this case because other states were trying to tell them how they should handle this case and they said well we're the great state of georgia like how we choose to handle this case is on us so it was like they were trying to make a statement yes um so we're gonna jump right into the trial itself um yeah so um going but before we jump into that do, do, do you have any thoughts no, I, I think that sets up the, the foundation for their relationship, which, like we mentioned earlier, is a big part of the story of, of their love throughout this case. Um, and just, like, like true love itself, like the ability to, like, yeah, it's easy just to, like, oh, I'm out of here. I'm giving up. But, like, when the going gets tough, you're you're there. Yeah, Absolutely. So we're going to hear from the, the prosecution, um, which was um, uh, Hugh M. Dorsey. Mr. Dorsey uh, was a pro- figure in Georgia legal circles and eventually would become um, governor of Georgia, kind of based off his work on this case. Um, he was known for his assertive and aggressive approach in the courtroom. Um, he sought to build a case against Leo Frank, representing evidence that linked him to the crime and by emphasizing Frank's uh, alleged and inappropriate behavior and motives. Um, so, and after after this next song, it's a short one. I'll explain kind of how the show goes about his approach. But first, we're gonna hear him his like opening statement um, in regards to the court case. Are you ready? Yep. Your Honor, gentlemen of the jury, and good people of Georgia. There is a farmhouse in Mayretta, kind of battered and forlorn. And in that farmhouse, 14 years ago, a girl named Mary was born. And she would dance in fields of cotton. She had a tree where she could play. But when her daddy died two years ago, Mary and her mama moved away It's only 20 miles from Marietta To a factory in the center of this town And 20 miles 
Cause was all it took to strike that sweet girl down People of Atlanta fought for freedom to their graves And now their city is a factory and their children are its slaves People of Atlanta swing their city gates wide And look at what you've wrought That's pretty convincing, like that's like, if you were looking at this, like, just watching the case, like, he's definitely setting things up. Well, what's so weird here, it's not weird, it's just how he played it, is this idea that this, which is true, is a tragedy. When I when I um, saw this, what really stayed with me was 20 miles was all it took to strike this little girl down. Yeah. A difference of 20 miles was the difference between her being safe and her not being safe. Yeah. Um, which is, like... That that's heavy, and yeah. it, he's convincing here. Yeah, and he <laughs> kind of had wonky legal tactics. Yeah, um, where it was um, believed that he was coaching witnesses uh-huh. on what to say. He was having witnesses lie about certain interactions, anything to link Leo yeah. to what happened, even if it couldn't be proven. Yeah, and ultimately, and we'll get into it why the developments in the case even happen is because they look into the evidence and kind of learn that, oh, he he wasn't very... Um, the evidence was shaky. Yeah. Shaky at best. Of but he was convincing. He was convincing. Yeah. And he was he was speaking for the people of Georgia. And um, I, I think in a lot of cases like this, where you kind of forget about the victim, because there's uh, this... like in, imposed like assumption of innocence with who's involved but like somebody did die a terrible death and like somebody like i think that's the worst part of these cases is that justice isn't actually something that's achieved because um like you said talking to the witnesses like trying to create this narrative and trying to create this thing we're at a position to like where yes this girl did die and are we really making sure that we're doing the best or are we just trying to close the case, get a moral victory and like advance our career? But at the heart of this, like somebody did die a very tragic death. And ultimately they were looking for justice for for that death and the people thought it was Leo. Yeah. They they thought he was the one. Um so stage wise, something that's very cool in the next song is um it's the testimony of three factory girls who are who are saying that Leo was inappropriate with them as well uh-huh. um, to sh- show like pattern. Um, and then there's a segment within the song where we get a hypothetical, what Leo would have said, like what they are saying he said um, and saying he did. Um, and what's very cool on stage here is they have Leo do all these things. He takes off his glasses and then he is in this guilty character version of himself Uh, doing these things to show the audience this idea that like you almost question with yourself, did he do it? Like this is very, and that's the idea. It's supposed to be convincing. It's supposed to be like giving you the question of, even though I know from the perspective of the show that he didn't, it's painting it like he kind of get where the jury, where they're coming from. Um, but but we're gonna um, listen to this next song. Um, it is um, the Factory Girls slash um, Come Up to My Office. Um, so we're just gonna get right in. That are you ready? Yeah. He calls my name. I turn my head. He 
could see how this being presented would definitely like sway how a jury, jury felt. Yeah, and something I really like writing wise here is the this hypothetical Leo. Um, uh-huh. Verbiage wise and dialogue wise, like the things that he's singing in the song cadence wise, uh-huh. is that of a southerner. Yes. There's y'alls, there's chuzz, there's just things that Leo being who he was, very articulate, very proud of being college educated yeah. and all these things. It's verbiage he would never say, and okay. it's verbiage from three teenagers of Georgia, uh-huh. which is such a fun, like, hypothetical version of him because it's with Southern dialect, yeah, which is was not his dialect. Um, which I just think is very fun from a writing perspective. But also his actions were not fun. That's not, I, his hypo- yeah, his hypothetical yeah. actions were awful. But yep. again, it was a hypothetical version of yeah. what they were saying allegedly happened. Um, do you know anything about um, Leo's lawyer? Uh, I, they talked about it in my research, but I, I forgot. So he, um, his name was Ruben R. Arnold. Um, and Luther Zay Rosser. Um, they were known for a skillful cross-examination. Um, their strategy was focused on challenging the evidence presented by the prosecution, highlighting the inconsistencies in witness uh, testimony and raising uh, doubts about Frank's guilt. Um, but, of course, they face a lot of issues yeah. here because of the that he was Jewish and public opinion. Um, that was a very big issue Up, uphill battle for sure yes um they argued that frank had been unfairly targeted due to his jewish background and that the evidence against him was weak and circumstantial um throughout the trial the defense team sought to establish an alternative explanation f- for the crime to cast um doubt and the credibility um especially of what Jim Conley, his testimony. Now, Jim Conley, going back to what we were saying earlier, was the, I believe he was the janitor on site. Um, In the context of the show, um, the prosecutor goes to Jim Conley Uh and said that he did some research on him and learned that he was um, an escaped felon Uh um, so that it would be very unfortunate if he went back to prison. And then you kind of alluded it's alluded to that he was coaching him on yeah. what to say. But in real life, though, a lot of people suspect that he was the killer. There are those who, who believe it, and it could be yeah. factual. From from what I heard, the, like, what I listened to, um, the, the reason that he kind of was sparked into the investigation is that somebody came down and he was trying to clean a shirt with blood on it. Yes. So... Um, from there, uh, there was also notes. Are we going to talk about the notes? Talk about the notes. Okay, so there were notes um, by the body. And they were um, basically notes that would never read aloud. Uh, but the way that the notes were presented was that basically it was written by Mary. And she was trying to say who the killer was. And she pointed that it was a tall black man um that's wording it differently than they did but um the handwriting that they looked at also matched jim so there's a lot of things that point him into it and in the real case um they were basically saying that jim was just helping leo and that's how 
they kind of used it to like, oh, this this guy told me to do this. He wanted me to help cover up and all this stuff. Um, so we're going to listen to that song yeah. um, that kind of depicts it's his testimony. It's yeah. his it's it's him coming forward, um, which this is one of those un- unfortunate things that like the subject matter is tough, but this song musically is awesome. Um, and like standing like close to a standing ovation in the yeah. theater for this because he just kills it. Um, but let's let's listen to that's what he said. He told me to watch the door, watch the door, that's what he said, that's what he said. I should make sure no one came and interrupted. Well, I'd say once or twice a month. They tell me, Jim, you watch the door, I got a lady coming. I got a lady coming. Like I said, once or twice a month, there'd be a lady come to call. And he'd say, Jim, you watch the door, that's what he said. And once I remember, it, it was two ladies. There was a black gentleman, I believe he said it was from Chicago. All right then, Jim, will you tell us about the morning of April 26? The day of the parade. He told me to watch the door, watch the door, that's what he said, that's what he said. I got a girl, she'll be coming up to see me. She's a very pretty girl. He said, don't let me catch you looking at Miss Mary Perkins. That's what we call her, I think. Miss Mary Perkins. So when Miss Mary came to call, I kept my eyes down to the floor Cause Mr. Frank said not to look, that's what he said Well, next thing, Mr. Frank is yelling something So I, I run upstairs and I open the door and Mr. Frank looks up He said we were playing a game, playing a game, that's what he said, that's what he said And little Mary's kind of crumpled in the corner He said, you don't understand, she didn't want to play the game And so I went and hit her Once again, like they're painting a very believable picture. Yeah, yeah. You like based off what they're presenting and yeah. the fear mongering within it. Um, yeah. This you, is. You added the biases of. They think they got their guy. Yeah. Something that kind of stood out to me in the lyrics is uh, you got money in your pockets and there's plenty more of that. I got wealthy friends and family and a wife who's dumb and fat. I don't like judging by like their relationship. Like that doesn't sound like something he would say. Right. But, um, and this, I, I'm so glad you brought that up <laughs> um, because within the the testimony, we also hear from Leo's housekeeper yeah. um, who, and she has a song in the show as well, but um, through her testimony uh, brings up that, that um, Frank makes Lucille sleep on the floor um, to paint this idea that he is a horrible husband yeah. who does not respect his wife. He does not love his wife. Um, which, and again, the housekeeper said this allegedly because prosecution took her in, yeah. um, for questioning and told her she had to, or she was a, um, African American worker. So like, yeah, if you told the prosecution, no, who's to say what kind of, yeah. what could happen there? There's, there's an implied level of power and corruption, especially like from like we come from a very privileged position as being like two two white men 
So we don't have to deal with this a lot. But if you look at like the level of systemic racism and like where maybe we were raised to be like, oh, if you ever have problems, go to a cop. That's not how it is for everybody. So there isn't this level of trust and like, oh, they're going to make sure that I'm safe. It's like they can do whatever they want to to me and people are going to believe them. So very believable that these type of things could happen with both of these guys. Um, so in the state of Georgia, um, you cannot testify on your own behalf, but you are allowed to make a statement. Uh -huh. Against legal counsel's advice, Leo chose to make a statement. Okay. Um, and that is um, the following song, which it's hard to speak my heart. That comes directly after this. Correct? Yes. It's hard to speak my heart. a man who bears his soul I let the moment pass me by I stay where I am in control I hide behind my work safe and sure of what to say seem hard I know I must seem cold I never touched that girl You think I'd hurt a child yet I'd hardly seen her face before I swore we'd barely met These people try to scare you With things I've never said I know it makes no sense Platt's the dude, right? Yeah. This is, for those who don't know, this is Ben Platt. We're using the newest version of the soundtrack if you want to, like, listen to the full thing at home. But, like, this makes it very sympathetic for him. Like, but if you realize, like, if you think about, like, in reality, this is just a very, like, straight-spoken man talking in front of a courtroom. This probably didn't go over as well as the song would have if he were to sing it. Right. Um... It's tough because yeah. he, like, in hindsight, we know a lot about this case in hindsight. Yeah. Um, and it's tough because it's like he's just a guy who had his head down, who was going to yeah. make money, who was going to support his family, who eventually wanted children yeah. and worked so hard to give his family a good life. And it, But because of how timid he was and because of how... Um, like, in his work, he was, he does not look like yeah. a family man. He does not look like someone who Southerners in Georgia would look to as yeah. a pivotal point of the community. Yeah, like a head of the household type figure. Um, 
So um, he was found guilty. Um, and um, he, like, so, his, conv- it was a conviction, and it was a death sentence. Um, and that's... And that's where Act One ends. Yeah, show wise. Um, and what's what's very cool um, is right before Act One, they like he changes on stage into prison clothes, and throughout intermission, he stays on stage. Whether he's at his desk, whether he's mm-hmm. just laying down on the platform, but he is to show that time is yeah. passing because the show jumps three years later. Could you walk us through like because we listen? You're, you Joel sent over a video for us uh, for. Uh, like uh, the director of this musical was talking about like, how he it. yeah. And he talked about like, when you go into this musical, you know what you're going to get because you walk in and the first thing you see on stage is the tree. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through like, what is the stage setup of this musical? Like it's, um, it's very cool. Um, so for most of the show, there's this like wooden box platform. That is a few, like, there's steps on it that, that goes up, and it, it's a platform. Uh-huh. That when he's in prison, he is on this platform. There is, like, a little bench that's supposed to be resembling a bed and a desk. And that's where he is for most of the second act. Uh-huh. Um, there's a, it's a, it's a very minimalistic um, set design approach of there's not a lot there, but very rustic, very... Um, uh-huh. Like, just, it's very Georgia. It's very, it gets yeah. the vibe of the turn of the century. Um, and, like, court, courtroom-wise, it like you have your jury on one side, you, you, you have Leo, and up the platform is the judge. Um, it's it's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very well done. Um, but, yeah, during intermission, he, um, he is just on stage the entire time. So really Ben Platt does not get a break in this show. Yeah. Um, and he's just there the whole time. Of course, people in the audience may have been trying to get his attention. A million people were taking pictures. Yeah. Um, but very into his craft. Yeah. And we really need to talk about, or I need to talk about the wife's performance in this. She was incredible. Um, cause she, she has this careful accent. I don't know if you can really pick up in the soundtrack. You can pick it up a little bit, but it's this turn of the century, Brooklyn, Southern yeah. accent that was very well crafted. Very like she spent time developing this and it's very unique and she, she is incredible in this and Ben Platt about 15 seconds, like into his first song, I said to myself, okay, I get it. Yeah. I had never seen Ben Platt in person. Uh-huh. And, like, I think a lot of people are very, um, like, uh, gotten a lot critical of, shit. Yeah. of him. Um, whether it's because he's kind of done his thing away from musical theater, trying to, like, make it as, like, almost like a pop artist. Um, or just, like, the nepotism of, like, his dad, like, with the... His uncles and, being yeah. producers. and Yeah. Um, but there was, after seeing this... I forgot it was Ben Platt. I yeah. got, I was, I thought it w- was watching history. Um, he is incredible. Yeah, like, he really does have the magic. But yeah, Ben Platt does not get enough credit because he he was incredible in this, yeah. like very moving and uh, very believable the, the whole way through. So um, to start the second act of the show, um, and this happened like historically around 1915, she w- was petitioning for the governor to reinvestigate the case. Uh-huh. Um, and he did. 
Like he went up to Jim Conley at a at a prison yard, which is a wonderful song that's not on the soundtrack. <laughs> um, where we kind of learned that his testimony was inaccurate because uh-huh. they did an autopsy on the body and learned that there were, um, I think it was like paper, some kind of like um, fiber from pencils uh-huh. that was in her mouth that like would not have made sense if he really took her from the top to the bottom. Yeah. Um, which kind of ruled out um, that testimony. Uh-huh. And so they're piecing this together and kind of piecing apart like what is real and what is not. Um, and around this time, it's tough because Leo is frustrated. He's very frustrated. He wants to get out. He doesn't think he's, he thinks he's going to die there. And Lucille's trying to help him. Um, and he, they're, they're clashing on it because he was trying to be granular about the help, the type of yeah. help he's getting. Because he is still trusting the process. Yeah. Even now he's trusting the process. And they, in the context of the show, they kind of have a, a fight about it. And we're, and we're going to hear that fight. It's called Do It Alone. Um, and it's just kind of her frustration with with him. Yeah. Like, fine, do it by yourself then. This is, like, also it's an impossible situation. Like, it's not something that people are prepared for. It's not something you know how to handle going into it. <laughs> yourself you're the only one who matters after all do it alone leo why should it bother me i'm just good for standing in the shadows and staring at the walls leo fight them strong and proud pray your voice is loud loud enough to make it through that door what on earth have i been worried for Anymore. No, do it alone, Leo. Now there's the right idea. Make me feel as useless as you always have. Do it alone, Leo. What could a woman do? After all, so many people love you. They're dancing in the streets, Leo. So the frustration is there. Yeah. Like we mentioned, this is an impossible situation to where like Leo's probably kind of being a jerk, but it's also like you have to kind of cut a person in that situation some slack, but the frustration that the wife is feeling is very real. Yeah. And it's this idea that she feels like she is the only one on his side and he won't be open to the only person who could help him. Yeah. She reminds me a lot of, um, Eliza from Hamilton. Yeah, I like that. Kind of like, uh, I'm going to tell your story, like, type of thing. Like, a very strong woman who is standing by her man. Uh, in Hamilton's case, maybe she shouldn't have. But in Leo's case, this is probably the the right call. Yeah. Um. So they're picking apart evidence. Um. We we come to learn that the, the factory girls... Um, we're coached on what to say. Yeah. But she, um, so we can just listen to this next song, which is my favorite song in the show. Um, it's just this, um, he gets a call, um, 
Well, he can't pick, he can't answer the call because he he's in jail. But his sec- like security officer like answers the call for him and tells him what was said in the call. Yeah. Um. So we're gonna listen to this is not over yet. Okay. Oh my sweet Lucille, how did you ever manage it? You don't know what any of this means. It means cancel all your parties. I'm sorry. I need to preface this with, but I thought the dialogue was was in here. Um, she calls and tells the the officer to tell him that you know who is gonna reexamine. You know what? Okay. And then Leo's like, "Do you know what you know who is?" And the officer's like, "No." He's like that means you don't know. You know what is? Yeah. So he's really excited because, like, oh my god, she's doing it. She's yeah. pulling it off, and that is this song. Oh my sweet Lucille, how did you ever manage it? You don't know what any of this means. It means cancel all your parties. Forget your big parade. It means the crowds will not be cheering. So despite what you've been hearing, you can lay down your spade. It means my mother can stop crying. My rabbi's eulogy can wait. It means the Dorsey can stop beaming and my cousin can stop dreaming of his portion of my estate. It means, no, this isn't over. No, the date's not set. No, I won't wake up tomorrow drowning in my sweat. It means I've got the greatest partner any man can get. It means I'll never Underestimate that woman Cause this is not over I love that song so much Yeah, it's the musical version of the song Who Runs the World? Girls (laughs) No, it's it's so great And he's so hopeful here And it has my favorite little lyric In anything ever written Of a man who isn't guilty Doesn't have to walk the plank uh, Which is just this palpable yeah it's hope it's they've they've proved the thing here is they they prove that he didn't do it Uh and because of the evidence brought forward he was not completely pardoned but he was not going to be sentenced to death yeah they communicated it to life in prison which was on the road to he would have been pardoned yeah eventually um so the governor makes that decision and then very like he he does not run for re-election after it and it he he described it like in the show there's a speech he has when he's giving this announcement where he brought up that there was once another how did he word it i think he he called him a governor it's like there was once another governor who who had a um a wrongly con- convicted Jew, and there was a stain on his soul in a, in a holy city that I will not stain this holy city with. Yeah. Um. Which, of course, talk about Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Yeah. Which, but that was palpable of of the time of yeah. of the area of the how religious Georgia was for good and bad. Yeah. It's like he was not going to have that on him. If he, because he truly didn't believe that Leo did it at this point. Yeah. Which does leave the door open for the opposing counsel to then run for governor. And he very much uses this as a launching vehicle for him to run and win and, and, um, from 1917 to 1922 be the governor of Georgia. So he got transferred to a different prison. 
Yep. Um, in which he was, uh, there was an attempt on his life yep. in that prison. Did, did you have anything on that? I don't. Uh, I, for those who aren't familiar with the story, uh, it sounds like we're going towards a happy ending. We are not. We are not. So just, I don't want anybody to like get super hopeful for this. We mentioned earlier the tree. Um, that's going to come into play. So do we have a song in between now and what happens? Yes. Yes, we do. Okay. We have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful okay. song. So in context of the show, and I can't really, I wasn't able to find anything fat, like from a historical context if this happened uh-huh. or not. I th- I would like to think it did because she was able to visit him a lot. Um, so she works out a deal with um, with the warden at this new prison to have a picnic with Leo. Um, because in the beginning of the show, she wanted a picnic, and he was yeah. just too busy. So they finally have a picnic in his cell. Yeah. Um, she brings their wedding china, and they f- have this heart-to-heart yeah. song. And they, they, they may have did a little more than sing, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, Before we start, Yes, I, I feel like this at its core is still way off Broadway, and I have one question that I think will kind of bring us back to our roots a little bit. Okay, let's say that you were falsely committed, accused of a crime. Okay, you're on death row. You're about to be killed. What's that last meal? <laughs> um, ooh man, uh, lots of cheesecake, cheesecake and steak, cheesecake steak, cheesecake and steak. What order? Steak first. Okay. How about you? So. It'd probably be like a nice roast beef, like like my mom's roast beef. Oh yeah, that's and just great. like like rolls from like Golden Corral, uh, rolls from Texas Roadhouse. Like my favorite thing from like all of my favorite restaurants. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, like a catering special. Yeah. Yep. I love that a lot. Um. So speaking lo- of love, yeah. <laughs> speaking of love, this next song. Um, <laughs> but she bribes the, the warden, um, with like offering like his niece a job and yeah. like, um, what if it was just like, we've got like, you want a hundred pencils <laughs> worth its weight in gold. Yeah. Um, but this next song is called all the wasted time where they're yeah. reflective about their relationship is so hopeful and they're just so in love here. And this um, there's, this is after this, there are two songs left. So to um, kind of point yes. where we are in this in this story. Yes. Um and it's very after the song it's very fast. Yeah. It's very and I'll talk about it after this song, but it was very jarring. Um, but here we go. Goals. 
so after this song, like they have just very cute moments, and they're just like, "You, uh, the show tricks you, man." Yeah, it makes you think there's a, a happy ending on the way. Um, and this song is wonderful. It's a great love song that, like, very much listening to it, like, prob- for me makes me reflective of my own relationship of like appreciate the person you're with because yeah. like she was such an advocate for him, such yeah. a fighter for him, and how hard that must have been on their relationship. To still be hopeful, to still, how easy w- would it have been to move on? Yeah, to just, of course. Just be like, okay, this, he, 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 like, this is how this is gonna lost end. cause. I just need to get on with my life. And um, but but the it, it, it it's incredible. And but directly, and I do mean the very next scene. So the most most hopeful scene in the show is followed by the hardest thing to watch. Um, my hands were over my eyes. Like and this in, uh, has never happened to me, but like I I put my hands over my eyes because I was just like this is hard to watch. Like I can't I can't this, watch this. Is this where he gets? Uh, yeah. So um, so Leo Frank was broken out of prison and taken to Georgia, Marietta, um, where Mary was from. Yes. Um and um. By a angry mob. Yes, and he was um and he was. Hug. He yeah. He was hung, and he. It was very important to him that he was able to at least cover yeah. up, so that because per Jewish, um, Jewish law or religion, like I, I don't want to misinterpret, yeah. but that when you when you pass on, you need to be covered up. Did I? I don't know where that comes from, but it was very important to him per yeah. per his religious views. Um, and we're going to listen to a very short song of, they asked him if he has any last words. He said, well, I didn't do it. And, and, but they wanted to give him the choice that if he just admitted he would, he did it, then they would let him go uh-huh. and that like he'd be convicted and like he would eventually die. Yeah. But they didn't want it to be in their hands. Ultimately they, they gave him one more chance. Yeah. And much like um, John Proctor in The Crucible, your name is all you have. So even though it would have ended differently for him, he chose to stick by that he didn't do it. Um, And he then has a quick prayer. Um, And we're going to listen to that prayer real quick. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuso Leolam Vaed Um, and the kind of messed up piece, which is again brilliant work by J.C. Robert Brown is it's to the tune of the Red Hills of Georgia. So that tune is throughout the show as this never-ending loop of this is the world. Yeah. Um, So, and and like um, Joel mentioned earlier, um, this relaunched the KKK in in that immediate area. Yeah. Um, They took pictures with the body. Um, You can find the pictures very easily online, unfortunately. Um, it's, um, it's very tough. Um, I think immediately after this, they said that they took a cross to Stone Mountain 
Stone Mountain's a basically a Confederate monument. It's like um, this mountain where they carved like Confederate generals into the side of. So they took a, a cross immediately to the top of Stone Mountain after this and burned it. Um, so we mentioned earlier um, that this was reopened in 2019. Um, the Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard announced that they would reopen Frank, Frank's trial with newly cr- created cold case investigation unit. However, there has not been any further development in the case, so it yeah. is still to this day ongoing. I think that they, I heard something that they pardoned him. Like, or at least they like, just for lack of evidence, like not saying that he didn't do it, uh, but one of the resources I listened to said that. Um which it, they could be wrong about it, but basically it's kind of like this thing in hindsight people look back on, much to like a lot of historical um, malfeasances and misjustices. Um, they kind of say, hey, yeah, we, we screwed that up. Let's take a look back at it. Um, and from here, because there's possible that we miss some things, we're going to hear from Joel again. Um, and he's going to just... Throw a bunch of fun facts at us. Well, not fun facts, but facts about this case that he found interesting. Um, and we're just going to learn a little bit more, and then we'll jump into our conclusion and, and all the things. Uh, Mary Fagan had quit school at the age of 10 uh, to go to work in a textile mill. In 1912, she changed jobs to the National Pencil Factory, where she would be earning 10 cents an hour running a knurling machine that inserted those little rubber erasers into the metal tips of pencils. She was usually scheduled to work 55 hours a week, uh, but because of the shortage of sheet brass that week, she had a shorter shift. So her pay envelope um, that she went to get from Leo Frank was for only $1.20. Now, at that time, Georgia was the only state to allow 10-year-olds to work um, 11 hours a day. And the legislature had recently killed a bill to raise the legal age to 14, okay? Um, Asa Chandler of the Coca-Cola company said, um, the most beautiful sight we see is the child at labor, which is so very, very sad. Uh, The National Pencil Factory employed 170 workers and they were mainly teenage girls. Now, Leo Frank always worked on Saturdays. He would use that day to catch up on bills and work orders and things like that. Uh, And, um, that's where he was on that day. He was only 5'6", weighed about 120 pounds, was a delicate, slight guy. Um, when he moved from New York to Atlanta, he married uh, Lucille Selig, who was 23 years old and was the granddaughter of the founder of the Atlanta Synagogue and the daughter of the largest disinfecting business in the world. Uh, they lived on a very fluent street, Washington Street, And uh, when Lucille was later asked what first attracted her to Leo, she replied, I just like to make him blush. Um, Now, when we get to this trial, because of all the racial tensions involved, it got national attention. And um, there were many witnesses that included close to 20 young girls who worked at that that company who all had the exact verbatim story when it came to dealing with Frank and he was eventually found guilty. Um, Now as I said, Governor Slayton of Georgia completed a great deal of research, over 10,000 of pages that he mulled through and he made the courageous decision to commute Frank to a life sentence 
the day before he left office. Now, this is very important because that was pretty much the end of his career, that decision. Uh, he left for New York City, where he and his wife were guests of William Randolph Hearst. They uh, attended the New Amsterdam Theater, Ziegfeld Follies, went to dinner with the Hearst following a weekend in Manhattan. They went to the Adirondacks, then to Chicago, then to Alaska, the Canadian Rockies, on to San Francisco. Uh, even to Hearst Mansion, San Simeon, and then on to Hawaii. They would be gone for three months thinking by this time, everything is going to sort of melt down in, in Georgia, everything will be all done, we can return. But that was not the case. Um, actually, as um, Leo was uh, in jail, he lay sleeping one night and a convicted murderer named William Crean, whose bunk was four down from Leo's, walked past his bed, produced a knife and slit Leo's throat. Uh, this is an interesting fact to me because this is not in the show. Uh, Leo lost so much blood that doctors thought he would surely die. Though Frank remained conscious, he just kept asking, am I going to die? And the doctor said, we don't know. Uh, no one knows why this attack occurred. The uh, increased security and commotion resulting from it probably postponed the lynching for a month. But on the night that he was lynched, he was kidnapped. He was driven seven to eight hours to Marietta and hanged from an oak tree in Fry's Woods. After the lynch mob had fled the scene, the first curious onlookers had found Frank was still alive. His body was warm and there was a faint pulse. Uh, the wound on his neck that I told you about was, um, had, was gaping open with blood, but no one cut him down. They just let him hang there a few more hours until he died. Now a crowd gathered to see this lifeless body uh, they took photos, uh, made samples of the rope, sold them, sold the photos for $25. In all, over 3,000 people gathered to see his body. Um, just a very, very sad part of our history that, um, again, the South, uh, they don't talk about this. I went on a trip to see Rent in Marietta uh, a number of years ago and looked for something about it, and there wasn't anything to, to be found, okay? As a result, um, the Knights of Mary Fagan, which was a self-appointed vigilante committee, included a clergyman, an ex-sheriff, two former Superior Court judges, and no member of this mob was even brought to justice. The grand jury that investigated the lynching reported to the court that they were unable to find evidence of anyone, despite offers of interviews by the lynchers to the news reporters. Okay. Now, uh, very interesting. Just 10 days before he died, Leo actually wrote a letter to a detective which ended by praising his wife, saying, Lucille is a ministering angel who had supported him wonderfully in his struggle to live because she was the one who, who confronted Governor Slayton with all this and convinced him uh, to do an investigation. Uh, Leo also said, surely God has let me live and aided me in this dark hour for a brighter day, which must be near at hand. Um, Lucille uh, actually um, moved to Memphis uh, for a couple of years after all this happened and eventually came back, uh, came back to Atlanta. She worked in a women's dress shop and always proudly signed her name, Mrs. Leo Frank. Uh, very interesting thing I learned in my research is uh, there were many, many uh, women of high society who had their dresses made by her and who loved her a great deal. 
and who didn't even know that their husbands and other members of their family were part of that lynching party because she was actually an important part of the community in Atlanta. Um, she died in 1957 at the age of 69. When friends cleaned out her bedroom following her death, they found photos of Leo at, at, and his grave um, and the wedding ring that was returned to her. Now, if we go back to that trial a little bit, Jim Conley was the uh, African-American gentleman who testified that he saw uh, Leo Frank uh, with, with Mary Fagan and with that body. Um, his story is an interesting one because after that testimony, he sort of just sort of dis disappeared. Uh, a little bit later, he he was sentenced to 20 years in a penitentiary for attempting to kill someone. Um, in 1941, he was picked up once again for public drunkenness, and then just sort of disappeared and died in 1962. Um, here's the real interesting little capper of all this. In 1983, 85-year-old Alonzo Mann, 85 years old, gave an affidavit of what he had seen 70 years earlier in the pencil factory where he worked as Leo Frank's office boy. He had seen Jim Conley carrying the lifeless body of Mary Fagan across the lobby heading downstairs. He said that Conley threatened to kill him if he ever spoke, so he went home, told his mother about it, and um, she said never to say anything, never to get involved. He feared um, he would carry the secret to his grave and he wanted to atone for it. Now many have, a, have discounted this story, but the state of Georgia has pardoned Leo on the grounds that the state of Georgia denied the factory sup superintendent of his constitutional rights by failing to protect him from being lynched while in custody at the prison farm. Thanks, Joel. That was actually really good. Yeah, um, very informative. We hope you guys enjoyed that too. This is. Um, we hope you guys have enjoyed this format too. Uh, we've had a lot of fun. Yeah, it's um, very different. Very so different. I I recognize if like this isn't why you listen to this podcast, but, um, but I think it was important. Yeah, um, I think definitely uh, we have this platform and uh, to be able to do that with some. Like, do something like this with this platform. It is pretty cool. So we hope you guys enjoyed it. The music itself is amazing. And I, I think just alone, like, the music is worth listening to. But, like, analyzing the story and realizing that there's so much of this story that still goes on today. It's like, whether it's corruption, whether it's it's anti-Semitism and racism and, and biases. and uh, This happened over 100 years ago, but we're still dealing with these problems today. So it's a very good reminder that, like, like if it's the thing where if you don't, like, pay attention to history, you're doomed to repeat it. And we're repeating it every day in this country. Yeah, it was, I mean... Theater-wise, this was like the most powerful piece of theater I've ever seen. I have never cried more. Yeah. Like, it was just, it was very tough, but very, it felt important. Um, and and I I hope there, there are positive take, takeaways from, from this episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, thank you, Joel, for giving us all, all that yeah, really good stuff. Yeah. And, like, a lot of research went into this kind of episode. Um, but if there's shows you want to see in this format, which we're calling Way on Broadway, which will, of course, stay on the Way Off Broadway platform, but 
every so often. We'll we'll do a show that we wouldn't fit the normal format that we can just kind of delve into, talk yeah. about the format of, and um and like just dig deep rather than yeah. listening to a whole show. But listen to some songs and really just talk yeah. about what the show is, whether it's a historical piece or a piece of media that everyone knows. Yeah, it's like it's like a Shrek, like a SpongeBob. Also, like. Something like Come From Away, which I've seen. Come From um, Away. Dear um, Evan Hansen. Like, yes. Some of these shows that, like, either they're they're very knowledgeable or they're kind of dark and deep. and just Or have, just fun media yeah. um, of, of things that everyone knows. And we can just kind of talk about things that or that we wouldn't normally talk about on the podcast. Um, but I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We, we will be back for that next episode. Um I, this has been a lot of fun. So, so thank you um, yeah. for listening. Um, and again, if there's any shows you, you think we should cover, um, let us know if this format didn't work for you. Let us know if you love this format, let us know. Yeah, um, there's, there's a way uh, if you're listening on Spotify, there is a way to like, if you just, we'll put a question in there. You can let us know it's private. It's not like it's going to be visible. Um, so just let us know what you thought of this. You can also message us on our socials, Way Off Broadway Pod uh, on Instagram, on TikTok, um, Way Off Broad Pod on Twitter. You can message us on Facebook. We also have threads. I don't know if people really know what they're doing with threads yet, but you can also reach us there. Just let us know. Um, and if you could think of a musical that this might fit into that you'd like us to cover in this style, let us know too. Um. Yeah, I, I'm super excited. Our next episode will be very fun. Um, we might do another one of these this season. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but it, it'll, it'll just depend. Like things, There is a format, but it also stays pretty open. And we want to hear from you. Um, we normally do takeaways, but this episode, I don't think... Um, this is basically one big takeaway. Yeah, it's the entire episode was the takeaway. Um and Daniel said it very well with the um, we're doomed to repeat history if we're not aware of it. Yep. Um, do we have something that's going to play us out, Daniel? Yeah. Uh, so one of my favorite artists is Jason Isbell. And um, he has a song called Speed Trap Town, which if you think of a speed trap town as like this small southern town where there's nothing to do but try to catch people speeding. Um, and yeah, I'm just going to play that somewhat. Uh, just a great song that I love, but also somewhat relevant. She said it's none of my business But it breaks my heart I dropped a dozen cheap roses In my shopping cart Made it out to the truck Without breaking down Everybody knows